Good morning, church. Today, we are finishing the last of five sermons in a series called The Way, where we've been talking about discipleship. And uh, the way we've defined discipleship is that discipleship is the process by which we become people who are de- fully devoted to Jesus' way, his life, and his teachings. And uh, the series is focused on four different parts of that calling that happens in all of our lives. Uh, Keith launched us in an intro sermon. That was a great sermon about discipleship. And then the last three weeks, we've talked about how Jesus calls his disciples. And we talked about that by the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, that Jesus teaches his disciples. And then he equips his disciples that we have everything we need to live a life uh, for, of godliness. And today I want to talk about how Jesus, once he does all of that work in our lives, sends us, calls us forth in mission to do the same thing with others that's been done in our own lives. And so today I want to talk about how Jesus sends us as his disciples back into the world to make other disciples. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Our God, we thank you for the calling you've placed on each of our lives, uh, that there are 8 billion people, God, that we've just sung about that reflect who your heart is and reflect your image in so many diverse ways, God, in so many beautiful ways. We're grateful for each one that points us to you. And I pray today that we would be formed more into the image of Jesus so we might more clearly reflect your purpose for our lives and we might live into the abundant life that you've called us into. This morning, I pray that you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. The primary place I think about when I think about the mission of God is in uh, Matthew 28. If you want to turn there with me, that'd be great. I'm going to read a few verses from the Great Commission. And then if you also want to put your bookmark in a different place where we'll spend more of our time, in John 20, it's where I want to take us to in a minute. But first, Matthew 28. This comes after Jesus has been resurrected and Jesus is giving his final words to his followers about what they're to do once he's gone, once he ascends to heaven. And he gives a mission that I've preached on before. I'll preach on again. It's central to our purpose as people uh, who are caught up in the kingdom of God and and followers of his. And it's also uh, something I share every Discovering Greenville Oaks, because this is part of the heart of our church as well, is to be a people who are set on mission. And so Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, listen to what Jesus' last words in the gospel of Matthew are. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, the mission we've been given is very simple, isn't it? The the call of God on our lives is to make disciples. And he defines a little bit of what that means. He says to make disciples is to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's to teach people to obey everything that uh, God has commanded us. It's to remind us of those things is what the Spirit does in our lives. And then he reminds us, hey, you're not alone in this task. You also have the Holy Spirit that's going to walk with you every step of the way in this mission that I'm calling you forth on. And so this is the call that God has put on our lives to make disciples It's a very global picture of the mission that God has given to us, to go into all the world, that God will be with you wherever you go. And we, as we gather here in Allen, Texas, it's a reminder that God's mission has done that, right? God's mission has been fulfilled. It's gone into all the world, all the way from Palestine to here in Texas, and it continues to expand in these days as well. So this is the story that God gives in Matthew. But in the Gospel of John, I love another picture that I want to share with us and go into a little more detail 
about the mission that God sends his disciples on. John 20, the beginning of that chapter, is the story of the resurrection. Uh, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and when she arrives, that stone that's been covering the entrance has been rolled away, and she looks inside, and the body's not there. And so she runs and finds Simon Peter and John, and she says to them, Somebody stole the body. That's the only imagination she has for why the body could be missing, right? Resurrection isn't a possibility. So this is, the body's been stolen. We've got to do something. So they run to the tomb and John, who writes the gospel, we assume is the one that says uh, him and and, and Simon Peter uh, go. And and John reminds us that he runs faster than the tomb than Peter, right? He gets author's license to remind people of who's fastest, right? It's strange detail that's there. But they get there, and then Mary Magdalene shows up behind, and, and she's weeping outside of the tomb. And all of a sudden, she turns around, and she's weeping, and there's this man there, and she mistakes this man for the gardener of, uh, of this place where the tomb was, but it's not actually the gardener at all. And so the, she actually has this confrontation and finds out this is Jesus that's been resurrected. And so she goes, and she runs, and she tells the rest of the disciples. And that evening, they gather in a room. The door's locked, and there's a reason for that I'll share in just a minute. I want to read this picture of what happens. Again, the night they discover Jesus' tomb is empty, the night of the resurrection. Listen to these verses. This is John 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, you're not forgiven. So Jesus enters into this room and he senses real fast what the tension in the room is. There's fear. There's fear of the Jewish leaders. Because these people have proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, and the thought is he's dead, which means they must have been proclaiming a false gospel. So they got the doors locked. They're afraid of what might happen, but what they've discovered is the resurrection's happened. So what they believed about Jesus was true, and, and, and so they're, they're afraid, though, of what may happen. And, and so the doors are locked, and all of a sudden Jesus kind of breaks through. He, he, the resurrected bodies are amazing things. He shows up in the room, and, and his first move in the midst of this fear is to say, peace be with you. And I love that image of Jesus, right? Because some of us are walking in that kind of fear right now in our lives. We've got some things that are going on that we're fearful of how they're going to turn out. And if if Jesus, as he's clarified in John 20, is any picture of the Jesus that's true in our lives, I think this is the same word Jesus wants to speak into whatever fear you're facing. Peace be with you. These are the disciples that saw him say these very words over the sea as they were in it afraid. And that sea was calm the same way this word of peace is being spoken into their lives as a word of blessing to calm what's there. And then he says this phrase, a little different than the Great Commission, right? As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. That's a really interesting idea, right? I mean, Jesus in Philippians 2, he's recounted as the one who was with God. and He gave up all that went with that, and he came to earth. He took on flesh. He became a servant. He died on a cross, right? This is the gift that God gave us was sending his son into the world. And what he's telling us as his disciples is, What God did with me is God's doing with you. You are being sent in the same way I've been sent. That's remarkable, isn't it? We look at the presence of Jesus and we think, wouldn't that be so much better if Jesus would just come back? But he's saying, no, no, no. When you have the Holy Spirit that I'm about to breathe on you, it's that good that that I'm sending you in the same way 
that I sent Jesus. And so when Jesus calls his disciples and teaches and equips and sins, that's the same commission we've been given. We're the ones who are called to call people that don't know Jesus yet to tell them the story and then to teach them what it means to follow Jesus and then to equip them and to make sure they know that the Holy Spirit has given you everything you need to live a life of godliness, that you have spiritual gifts, and then to send them again. It's not enough just to make disciples. The job of the church is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, right? You've got to pass it on. That's why we're here is because for generations, people have been doing that very thing that Jesus commanded, being sent as Jesus was also sent. But then he does this really strange thing in John 20. You notice it, right? He breathes on them. Can you imagine what it would have been like to, to be there and think, what in the world is Jesus doing, right? I mean, we're afraid, first of all, peace, that's great. I'm sending you, and then he just breathes. Now, if you're paying attention to Scripture all the way back, and of course, these people would have known a lot of the Jewish background in the Old Testament, then there's some things that come to mind when we think about breathing, right? In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter in the entire Bible that recounts kind of the second creation story, I guess you can say, right? Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Listen to these words about breath. Just listen for that word closely. In Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is the act of creation, right? When God breathes into whatever it is, those things come to life. And I'm wondering if some of you have had that experience before, right? You think if things are hopeless or lifeless or without a future or a hope, and what God does is he breathes life into the midst of those situations. Maybe you feel like right now you're being sustained on that, or maybe that's what you need to pray for. God, would you breathe so that I can be made alive again? But another place that's really interesting that talks about the breath of God, a similar outcome is in Ezekiel, this prophet in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 and following. Listen to this prophecy that God gives to Ezekiel about breath and about the dry bones. It says there, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. And then you will know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, Ezekiel says, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Both of these passages talk about the breath of God entering into what seems like it's dead, and all of a sudden, things come to life. 
I love uh, looking at languages sometimes, and it's interesting. The, the Bible's written in several languages. There's some Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew and Greek. And, and there's a word in the Hebrew and the Greek. They're two different words, obviously, in two different languages, but they both mean three different things, interestingly enough. That's the etymology that goes back in both of these languages. It's the word ruach in, in the Hebrew, the word pneuma in, in, in the Greek. And what they can be translated as is one of three things, either breath or spirit or wind. Both of those languages, it's, it, it, it's interpreted that way. So translators have a difficult time trying to figure out in context what's intended because English has a lot more words for things than what the Hebrew and Greek do. And so it's really interesting, but there's a mystery to this idea, isn't there? Because we can say the Holy Spirit's involved in something, but it's always kind of up in the air, right? I mean, is that the Holy Spirit or is it something else? Is it a new wind? Is it a breath? But God kind of ties all these together in a passage like this. There's something about the breath of God where the spirit of God is at work there too, right? We see that in Ezekiel 37. I think that's the same thing in John 20. In fact, it says that, right? Jesus breathes on them. And the next line is that the Holy Spirit is put into them. That's the promise that's given. And I love that promise and I love that image about this. It's a mystery, but at the same time, there's something about the breath of God that comes over us when we become followers of Jesus that we're brought to life and the Spirit of God works within us. Now, this is a simple mission that we've been given, right? Matthew 28, it's make disciples of all nations. John 20, it's I'm sending you as I've been sent. And this simple mission is why the church is still in existence. We exist because disciples of Jesus have been doing this thing that Jesus called us to do for centuries now. It's a simple mission. And yet, when we talk about faith, it can get so complicated sometimes, can't it? In 1993, there was a new term that was emerged during the, the United States peacekeeping mission during the Somali Civil War. And the term that was invented during that time was mission creep. This is not that guy you uh, leave in Honduras after the mission trip. That's not what I'm talking about. Mission creep, that's funny. Come on, no help on that? Mission creep, as I define it, is this. The expansion of a project or mission beyond its original goals, often after initial successes. So what began in Somalia as a humanitarian assistance mission evolved into a much larger military operation than what was originally called for. There was success and they began to look around and they saw maybe there's more that we can do. And the term has been used in other military operations uh, throughout the years as since 93 it's where an initial mission gets larger, expands, sometimes in a nation building or things that weren't foreseen at the beginning. And that emerged in the early 90s, but many different industries, leadership, have taken on this term and used it in different fields. Some of you may have studied about the idea of mission creep. And I think it's actually the right term to use when I think about the mission of the church over the last 2,000 years. Because Jesus gave us a simple mission. We're called to go into all the world and to make disciples. And we've done a great job of it. And our mission's not complete. There are still people that don't yet know the name of Jesus. There are people in our own nation that are in that place. Our work is not done. But in our successes from those 11 who gathered in that room, or, or more that may have been present, but at least those disciples who were there, in John 20 to billions of people in the world today, across the world who call themselves Christian, we've allowed mission creep to occur in the church. And how that's happened is we moved from a, people who are making disciples to people who are building megachurches. That's what's changed in our mission. And, and, and 
the interesting thing is um, our, our concerns have moved from this one-on-one call to be with people, to, to make them disciples, to baptize them, to teach them and commit, to building institutions. And the truth is Jesus never called us to build uh, an institution. He, he called us to make disciples. And, and I want to speak confessionally to this this morning because when I got into ministry, I, I went into ministry with this idea that I wanted to make disciples, that I wanted to preach, I wanted to be able to study the Bible with people. I wanted to see people come alive as they see the abundant life that's available in Christ. And as I got into those six or seven years of undergrad and graduate studies to prepare for all this, what I realized was a lot of my classes uh, prepared me a whole lot more for leading an institution than for making disciples. I got classes about budgeting, which is a really good thing for a minister to have, right? We need to handle the money that's given well. I I got classes on leadership development, classes about the history of the institution, church history going back. I got uh, classes on how to read the Bible, which is really helpful. Sometimes it was more focused, though, honestly, on how to preach a sermon from Scripture rather than to devotionally submit my life to it. And it's amazing how the more you study for building an institution, how you lose the central focus of what ministry or really discipleship or any of this that we were called to is about in the first place. The initial mission that Jesus gave us was not to maintain a church. It was to make disciples. And it's important that we deal with the institutional nature of the church. After 30 plus years at Greenville Oaks, people gather and and we need to organize that well. That's not a bad thing, but it's important that we never take our eye off what is central. What's the command that was given? What's mission one? And that is to make disciples. And here's the problem with this mission creep the church has been involved with. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because I think it's so central to what, what the mistake is that we're making right now. If you build churches, there's no guarantee that disciples will be the result of it. But if you make disciples, churches can't help but being birthed from it. And if we get this backwards, we we stop making disciples and we just start gathering crowds of people. And who are the people who killed Jesus? Crowds of people, right? Disciples don't do that. Disciples are called into the abundant life and they go and share that message and they make more disciples because that's the mission the church is to be about. Amen? Your number one mission as a follower of Jesus is to make disciples, to make them of your family, to make them of your friends, to make those who don't know Jesus followers of Jesus. We are called to this. I think sometimes in the United States, we, we've, we've mistaken that missions is something that happens outside of the United States. It's something that happens uh, among people groups that haven't yet uh, been you know, civilized, not like us. And so missions becomes, in that framework, something that we do in November. We gather money so that we can go and send people overseas. And some of us are radical enough to even go on a mission trip, Right? And we're so grateful for those of you who serve on the missions committee and all that, but the vision of the missions committee is not to gather money to send somewhere else. I'll tell you that. We'll speak about this again in November. The the goal of the missions committee is that we would embody the task of taking the gospel to all nations, but never forget that our mission is also here, right? It's that all of us are missionaries. Missionary is not somebody who goes overseas and trains to go to people who haven't heard Jesus. It's to be reminded that that's still needed here, maybe even more so than in past centuries. Mission is not something that happens out there in other places. It's something that happens for every follower of Jesus. You're a missionary. It's not a calling you get with a degree and some amount of money that people give to you. You're a missionary that's called to that right now. 
And the only remedy we have for Christianity in the midst of what we see around us in decline is like the early church to consider each one of us again as missionaries who are on a mission, who are in the middle of one of the biggest mission fields on planet earth right now. Let me give you some stats to convince you of the reality in America right now. In the year 1900, two-thirds of all Christians were in the West, what we consider the West, right? Europe and Western Europe and, and over the United States, right, so forth. Think of that as the Western world. Two-thirds of Christians in 1900. Today, two-thirds are outside of the West. That's not all bad news. That may sound like we've decreased and others have stayed the same. No, there's been a great increase in the global South and in Africa and South America and Asia. God's doing amazing things in China. But it does mean that we are declining, not even staying neutral here in America. While our numbers continue to increase, the church isn't always doing that. Only 17% of Americans are in church on a given Sunday. And North America is now the largest mission field in the English-speaking world. It's third in the entire world behind India and China. We need to keep sending missionaries, but we're receiving missionaries, church. People are seeing us as the destination where the gospel needs to be received again. And that means we need to reconsider our task. We don't stop the mission we do other places, but we can't give up on the missionary task that's here in our own backyard. And I love the examples that are happening around us like this. And this is what we want to call you more to in the days to come. We want to be a missionary-making, disciple-making church. And what we believe is that in Collin County over the next 10 to 15 years, there's a lot of people that are going to be moving in. And we believe we have an opportunity to do something about that, to step up in our disciple-making, to think about those in our connections around us and to do something. In fact, we have that happening in places. We have, we, we have people that are engaged in Bible studies with people that are praying for their neighbors and are sharing the good news with them. We have Bible studies that are going on here. We have groups like Mom to Mom and Heart Health Felt Friends where women are mentoring other moms and mentoring and discipling them to be better followers of Jesus. We have we have all kinds of places in our church from hope to celebrate recovery that are leading people to freedom, and that's all a part of discipleship. And we're launching more as we launch Rooted next Sunday. I hope you'll make it at 3 p.m. in the Teen Center. We've said a lot about it, but this would be a great next step for you. If you're wondering about how to find greater connection in our church or for your next step in discipleship, it's a 10-week discipleship experience that we'd love to call you into. Next week is our information session about that. But our dream at Greenville Oaks is to see what's coming and to do something about it, not to give up on this incredible window we are in. Right now in Collin County, it's about a million people who live here. Some of you are thinking, a million? I remember when I used to live here and it was all farmland, right? I remember when there was nothing up here and it was great because, and then all these people started moving in, right? And news is about to get worse if that's your perspective because by 2030, we're expected to grow by 100%. The next 12 years, a million more people. And I know there's parts of us that are thinking, oh, uh, this, where, the high, are the highway systems going to get in here? Because how are we going to get around? This is such a pain, and we used to love it up here. And I want to ask you to put a different set of lenses on if that's your perspective. Put your kingdom lenses on for a second. We are in an incredible moment. There aren't many places in our nation that are going to double in size over the next 12 years. There aren't many places in the world that's the case. There's more in the world than there are here. And that means there's an opportunity in the midst of this. We have eyes to see it. And if we miss this moment, I believe God will hold us responsible for that. 
Because people are moving in from all over the world for some of the same reasons we do. They're coming here for economic possibilities, for educational opportunities. There's, there's a lot of good things about Collin County. And we love living here. But what we realize is what, what people come here for isn't always the thing about Jesus that the church is trying to promote. And some of us moved here not realizing that the things we thought we were pursuing didn't actually give us life. They're artificial. They're not real. And what's real is a life that's found in Jesus that restores marriages and restores relationships and is caught in the abundant life. That's what we have to offer these people who are moving here, thinking they're moving here for a different reason. And that means we as a church have got to think about the way we handle our resources. We've got to think about what we're doing and what our vision is because this is a moment that not every uh, church has. And we are uniquely placed in a time and an era where God is going to bring growth. The question is, is the church going to be open to see it and excited to be a part of it? And I believe we will. But revival is not going to happen because uh, uh, two or three people decide they're going to reach 100 people, right? That'd be great if we could see that. But it's going to happen because all of us look around us and build relationships with one, with, with another person, and we invite them into this life that's blessed us. Right now, I want to ask you to do something that I don't often do. Take out your cell phone if you would, okay? I want you to go to your contacts list. And I want you to scroll down this list. You're welcome to do this for the next three or five minutes, whatever. And I want you to find somebody on that list that you believe God might be drawing your heart to lead on a closer walk with Jesus in some way. Somebody that you see that their heart may be opening in some way. They're growing closer to God. And, or maybe they're, they're not even on the radar at all. and They're moving away from God right now. But there's somebody that God's placed on your heart to be in relationship and in partnership with. And what I want to ask you to do right now I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to give us a moment. I want you to text that person just a word of encouragement, a word to let them know how much they mean to you, and, and, and be open to the fact that when you send this text that maybe later today they'll, they'll send you a text back and you'll have a chance just to say, would you like to grab a meal or coffee just to get to know each other better or to encourage one another? I'd love to do that. I, right now, I just want to give us time. I'm going to do the same thing while you all are doing, to it, doing it. Uh, let's just text that person and we're going to pray over uh, these messages and what God does through this. I want to pray over this communication we've had because my trust is that the Holy Spirit's involved in the lives of these people and, and God loves them desperately. The Holy Spirit's been involved in prompting our hearts in some way to reach out to these people. My prayer is not that we would uh, you know, take out our Bibles and bang them over the head. That's not at all it. It's just to start asking questions and just to see if God's moving in their lives at all. It's to begin a relationship. It's to encourage and see what God does. And my trust is that God's going to move even today in these conversations, and who knows what God may do. I'll be excited to hear what that will be. Uh, so right now, I want to uh, pray, and, uh, and then I want us to, to move into our conclusion uh, in just a moment. God, we, um, we thank you for the ways you're at work in our lives, and I thank you for those in this series, just over the last five weeks, God, that have given their lives to you, that have recommitted their lives to you, that want uh, to step in again to being disciples in a greater way, to following Jesus more closely. And I thank you for that, God. I know you honor those commitments and you've forgiven sins in this series, God, and you've set people back on the path and, and you've surrounded them with your arms. God, that's good news for us. But there are others that need the same good news. And God, you've laid them on our hearts and we've, we've sent messages. And I pray over uh, these messages and the people, God, that you care desperately about, that these interactions would not be interactions that would create any kind of fear, we know that you're a God who speaks peace over the fear that we have. 
And God, I pray you'd breathe into each one, the one on each end of this message, God. Uh, those of us in the room and those that you're trying to reach out to through us, God, and that you would, uh, you would use your Holy Spirit, God, to walk with us every step of the way through whatever you want to do. You'll change us through these interactions as well. Because it's not just us, God, who bring Jesus to others. What we do is we discover Jesus in the most unexpected places more clearly than sometimes we're even knowing how to follow. And so, God, I'm excited for the growth we'll have through that opportunity to make disciples. And I pray, God, you would bring fruit in whatever ways you want to through these children that you love uh, desperately and who have been created in your image. And I pray this today in the name of Jesus. Amen.